everything will go smoothly. Um, but we want to thank each and every one of you for coming here. Uh, it's very edifying, and I hope that this morning uh, what we will study uh, will be both encouraging and edifying uh, to each of you all. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are in the midst of our spring lectureship series where we are talking about questions from the Bible, and we will find our question in Romans chapter 8. I would like to apologize the outline that is out there. I was going through it several times and found several typos that I missed, so I apologize for that. But uh, I have them corrected on the slides uh, and in my notes, so you can go ahead, feel free to go ahead and just cross those out and correct them. The epistle of Paul um, that was written to the Romans uh, is believed to be written around AD 55 to AD 57. And most scholars believe that is one of Paul's greatest works. Um, it was written to the church at Rome, and really we don't know a lot about the origins of the church. Um, but some scholars believe that uh, it was uh, founded actually in Jerusalem, and then when the church dispersed, some of the Christians there went back to Rome and set up the church, but that's all speculation. But really, Paul addresses some conflicts that the Christians there were dealing with. And throughout the book, Paul uses really powerful language to convey to these Christians on who God is. Not all of them, but we know some of them might have been pagans. And so Paul's really trying to describe to them who God is and really that salvation is apart from the law. We read how the Gentiles had been grafted into God's family and really how the Jews had failed to keep the entire law. Paul preaches that salvation depends upon faith in Christ Jesus and requires us to trust in Him. Paul, in each chapter, uses very vivid imagery to show and to uh, allow the Christians there to really understand who God is. And in the first eight chapters, really briefly, Paul talks about how, in chapter 1, God's plan was revealed by bringing salvation, and uh, how His righteous anger was against those who practice unrighteousness. In chapter 2, God's judgment is according to truth. Chapter 3, we read how God's righteousness is revealed in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, we read how faith is accounted for righteousness and the promise is granted through faith. And in chapters 5 and 6, we talk, or Paul talks about this free gift. And the free gift is, was brought by Jesus Christ, and that is eternal life. In chapter 7, he's really talking about being dead to the old law and to embrace the new. And in chapter 8, God, or Paul is talking about God's design and His protection. In chapter 8 and verse 15, we read, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So Paul is trying to say, now you are adopted sons. In verses 16 and 17, he says that God has granted them and us His Spirit. And in verses 28 through 30, he reveals uh, God's plan to save us. And this all culminates to verse 31, where he says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what we're going to take a little bit deeper look into this morning and try and really dig into the meaning of this question, find how it relates to us, because I believe that once we start to understand these questions and how it relates to us, we can start and uh, start to grow closer to God. When I was 
reading this verse, I always think about uh, those stories that you hear from uh, wartime where you know a single individual or a group of individuals stand up against an immense enemy to, to give either their brothers or sisters time to escape or time to prepare. And when I read this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what I think about. This, this lone soldier standing up against an immense enemy and Paul is just laying it out. Um, in this question and really encouraging the Christians and us today. But before we, or to understand this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, I asked myself, how is God for us? And to understand that, we need to look at God's character. So if you would, in your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The Apostle John is writing to the Christians, and he says in verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Those last two words, at all, are very powerful because it makes the definitive case that there is absolutely no darkness in God. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, it means that because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness, he cannot tolerate sin. And so throughout the book of John, John is encouraging the Christians to come to know Him, to abide in God. In chapter 2, we read that those who love the truth and keep His commandments are found in God. But those who do not hold fast His word have no love for the truth and do not abide in Him. So because of this characteristic of God, that He is light and in Him there is no darkness, as a Christian, I should and we all should need to be found walking in Him, walking in righteousness and walking in the light. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how God is holy. In chapter 1 and verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we have this kind of broad generalization of who God is. God is light, and God is holy. So as a Christian, we need to be light, and we need to be holy. And we can, we can understand that God can be for us because John and all the apostles come saying, you can come to know Him if you walk in righteousness, if you walk in the light, if you strive to be holy. But then the other question that I ask myself is, well, why should we trust that God is for us? And really we can look at His desire for us in Psalm 91. Psalm 91, David is talking about God and gives us a glimpse of his desire. And in 91, in Psalm 91, verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Uh, this reminds me of when Jesus looked out and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish that you would just come to me. How I wish, as if a mother hen, I could just gather you under my wings. And we see this again, Peter talks about it in first or in Second Peter chapter three, where he says in Second Peter chapter three and verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count in slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
So God's character is light. He is holy. But His desire is for us to come to Him, to be a part of Him, to be saved. But not only that, but we read that we can trust God because He is faithful to perform. Earlier in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about Abraham and how, his, how the promise was granted through faith. And in chapter 1, he's talking about how Abraham, being fully convinced what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So we have now that God is light, God is holy. We need to be striving to walk in likeness. We need to be striving to be holy. But that God's desire is for us to become close to Him, for us to abide in Him and He to abide in us. But not only, that doesn't just, I could just walk down here and say, you know, that's, you know, that's how God is for us. But as I dug deeper into God's character, I found out that there are other reasons why we can trust God to be for us. Because you see, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. His knowledge is infinite and it's impossible to hide anything from Him. In Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord, and mighty in power, His understanding is infinite. In Psalm 39, verse 4, He knows the very words before we say them. In Matthew chapter 10, and verse 13, we discover that every single hair on our head is numbered. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we talk, the Hebrew writer is talking about the Word of God and really gives us this insight that the Word of God is living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That, how, that is God's omniscient character, all-knowing. But some examples that when I started studying, I came across, was found, I found one in Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, we read of the story of Hagar. Now, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God has given Abraham the promises of the land, the seed, and the nation. And in chapter 16, you know, Sarah and Abraham are, are about to give up. You know, they, they're, you know, they've tried to have a son, they can't, so they try and help God a little bit. So Sarah, or Sarai, gives Hagar as a concubine to Abraham, and then she gets jealous because now she, Hagar has a child, and so she throws Hagar out. And it says that uh, she was, uh, in verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring uh, on the way to on the shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah has made, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. And because the Lord has heard your affliction, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also, I have also here seen him who sees me. God knew Hagar's he knew what she was concerned about. She, he knew what she was really, you know, battling. And God comes to her and says, look, everything's going to be okay. In chapter 18, 
we see how God's omniscient character is found out because he knew Abraham. In chapter 18 and verse 17, God has decided that the time of Sodom and Gomorrah is done. He's going to destroy, destroy them. And he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to them. You know, I, I can watch uh, a movie or TV show and the actors there and talking with my friends. It's like, yeah, I know that actor or whatever, but I don't really know that person. I can recognize them, but I don't know their character. I don't know their personality. I don't know what's going through their brain, but God does. He knows that from each and every one of us because God is all-knowing. In Job chapter 38... We really witness God's knowledge kind of laid out for us. You know the story of Job, how Job was this rich, wealthy man, blessed by God because he was faithful. And the devil comes to God and he says, you know, the reason why Job is so faithful is because you blessed him. So let's take, you know, let's, but if you take, you know, a little bit of his blessings away, he's going to curse you. And so we see that Job loses his wealth, his house, his family, even his health. His friends come to him, and instead of encouraging him, they go, you must have done something to upset God. His own wife comes to him and says, curse God and die, but he doesn't. But Job has some questions for God. And in chapter 38, the Lord answers Job out of the world when he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut the sea uh, with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when it made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set its set bars and doors. When I said, thus far you may come, but, but no farther. And here your proud ways must stop. On and on and on we can see in chapter 38 how God is saying, do you know this? Were you there? And in chapter 40, we see Job's reaction. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but, once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice. I, but I will not proceed no further. And God doesn't just stop there. He keeps going. Can you draw out the Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose? Again and again and again, God is showing, or God is showing Job that you really don't know anything compared to what I know. I know everything. Because God is omniscient. And that's why we can trust Him. But... We can also trust God because God is omnipresent. He's always there. There is no place where we can go to hide from God. And Psalm 139. Psalm 139. David is talking about this characteristic of God. And in 139... Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
David is saying here, I can go as high as, as, as low. I can go far east. I can far west. But guess what? God is there. And that should give us comfort. That's why we can trust God to be there. Because He's going to always be there. In Proverbs chapter 15, in verse 3, the eyes of God's eyes are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And this is really encouraging because as Christians, we know that the Lord is near. In Psalm uh, 45, Psalm 45, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He hears our prayers we see in Psalm chapter 34 and verse 15. Think about in Exodus chapter 32, Moses' intercession. You know, the children of Israel have come to Mount Sinai. They have witnessed God's power. They have witnessed His majesty. And Moses has now gone up to, to learn from God, to get the law. And he's been gone for a while. And you know what? The children of Israel give up. They turn to Aaron. Aaron, make us a God that we should worship. And because God is everywhere, He knows what's going down on the ground. And He is mad. I mean, He wants to utterly wipe out every single person down there. But Moses pleads with Him. And God listens. That's because God was there. And we can have courage and we can have trust that God is going to hear our prayers because He's everywhere. In 2 Kings chapter 13, we read how God did listen to, uh, to Jehoahaz. Now, Jehoahaz was the king of Israel, and as we all know, there are some good kings in the kingdom of Judah, but there's not any good kings in the kingdom of Israel. And chapter 13, we see that Jehoahaz is in any different. In the 23rd year of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin and did not depart from them. Then the, ang- then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So we see here that Jehoahaz, he becomes king. He does not decide to follow God, but keeps going on in idol worship that Jeroboam has set up. And God's about to be fed up. He's angered. And so he sends Syria to oppress him, oppress them, and to really make it really hard for them. And guess what? Jehoahaz, in verse 4, pleaded with the Lord. In some versions, it says that Jehoahaz sought the Lord. You know what? And the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, and because the king of Assyria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so, they, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the ch- children of Israel dwelt in their tents. We can see that this evil king, this wicked king, once he tried to, well, once he did, once the one time that he sought God, he asked for help, God listened. How much more, when we are trying to walk in the light, to be holy, how much more will God listen to our prayers? One of the most intense prayers uh, that we read about in the Bible can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read of Hannah, and she is in distress. She, is, she can't have children, and she's being, uh, she's being I guess, provoked uh, because of that. And she, she goes into the, the tabernacle, and she prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, 
Do not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Later on, we see that the Lord remembered her, and Samuel was born. So we see here that because God knows everything, we can trust Him. But because God is everywhere, he can, he, He's near and He can listen to our prayers. And that's why we can trust Him to be for us. But not only that, but our God, the God that is near, the God that wants us to come to Him, He is the God of comfort. Several times in Deuteronomy, the Lord gives comfort to the children of Israel. But in Deuteronomy chapter 31... Verse 8, Moses is describing, uh, Moses is preparing the children of Israel before they enter the land for the conquest. And in Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, he says, And the Lord, He is one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. You know, these are stories from the Old, Te- Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 reminds the Christians and us today that we are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in us. But then in his second letter, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says that God is the God of all comfort. So not only can we turn to God to pray to Him and know that He's going to listen to us, but the God that dwells in us, the God that wants us to be, abide in Him is the God of all comfort. We see several times in the Bible where God is mentioned as the forward and rearward guard. You know, uh, in, back in those days, um, as an army was marching off to battle or to conquer a, a land, they would have scouts in front and in back to protect the army. And that's what God is. And God says, I will go before you and I will come after you, giving this, this sense that God is always going to be protecting us from everything or from, from everything that will, would harm us. In 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, we see God's protection in the story of Elisha. So the king of Syria has come up and he's made these plans. This is where I'm going to camp. This is what we're going to do. And Elisha goes and tells the king of Israel, this is the king of Syria's plans. And so, you know, they're trying to find out who's the spy. And his servant says, there's no spy among us. It's this man of God. So the king of Syria sends out um, a group of soldiers to uh, surround uh, Elisha and the town that he's in. And it says that early in the morning, his servant went out and he saw the army around, around him. Now, I'd like you picture that you woke up this morning... You looked outside your window as you're drinking your cup of coffee, and you immediately saw your house surrounded by SWAT team. That's what this man saw. But Elisha says to him, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And his eyes are open, and he sees the chariots of fire on the mountains. That is because God is omnipresent. He's always there. And if He was there for these righteous people, surely He can be there for us. How great and how awesome is our God, who does not leave us nor forsake us, but who is always near, ever-present, and all-knowing. That's why we can trust God to be for us. But not only 
is God all-knowing and always there, but He is omnipotent, all-powerful. In Jeremiah chapter 10, God made the earth by His power. In chapter 32 and verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for You. In Genesis chapter 1, we read of the creation of this world that we see and experience. And over and over again, we witness God's power. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Over and over and over again, we can see that God's power is infinite. In Exodus chapter 2, we read of the story of Moses. And we see uh, throughout Moses' life that God is all-powerful. Just think about it. Moses is born. The decree is that every male child born of the Israelites is to be killed. And his mother and father decide not to follow that law. So they hide him. But it gets to the point where hiding Moses is impossible. So they put Moses in the basket and send him off in the Nile. And this is the Nile River we're talking about. There are saltwater crocodiles. There's plenty of snakes. Not only can any of those animals kill baby Moses, but if he gets out too far, he could fall over and drown. An Egyptian could recognize that this is a Hebrew child and just throw Moses into the river. But because of God's almighty hand, because God is always there, he leads Moses to Pharaoh's daughter. In chapter 12 and verse 30, some time has passed, and we're talking now about the ten plagues. And it's the last plague, and the children of Israel had prepared and followed God's law, and the angel of death comes through the land of Egypt. And it says that there was not one house of the Egyptians that was not touched by the angel of death. But none of the children of Israel were. That is God's power. But not only that, imagine with me that you are the children of Israel. In front of you is this Red Sea, and behind you is the armies of Pharaoh coming with their chariots. It's pretty scary. Until Moses, by the power of God, stretches out the rod and the Red Sea parts. Not only are you walking between two giant walls of water, but you're walking on dry ground. And then when Pharaoh's army continues the pursuit, you look back and you see, well, they're struggling in the mud and in the water. And then when all the children of Israel are out, the Red Sea closes, wiping out Pharaoh's army. That's the power of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. We can see God's power again displayed in how He dealt with Jericho. You know, the children of Israel, they have a couple of victories on the east side of the Jordan underneath their belt, but they have not come up yet against a fortified city. They don't have any siege equipment. They don't have any of the tools that you need to, lay, to wage warfare against a fortified city. And so God gives these instructions, and the children of Israel follow them. And at the very end, when they blow the trumpets, when they yell with a great shout, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. It wasn't the, the volume of the noise that was issuing from the Israelites' army that made those walls fall. No, that was God's power. We see evidence of God's power with David. 
In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, David is instructed by his father to go to his brothers who are encamped with the army of Israel against the Philistines. And so he's going there, he's delivering some supplies, and he witnesses Goliath. Now, Goliath is a Philistine, he's a trained champion of the Philistines, and he's a giant. And he's making fun of God, he's making fun of the armies of Israel. And David is looking and saying, who is this to speak against our Lord? When nobody would stand up, he said, I'll go. I'll go and and take care of him, because God, God will be with me. And in talking, we see that this isn't David's first time facing danger. He had faced a lion, and he had faced a bear. But by the power of God, he was able to overcome them. We know the story. David goes down. He confronts Goliath. And this giant, this trained champion of the Philistines, is killed by one stone. That is the power of God. In Daniel chapter 6, we read of Daniel in the lion's den. The Persians have come to rule where in Babylon, and uh, Daniel has found favor in the sight of Darius, and this has made him some enemies. And so um, his enemies come up with this grand plot. They are going to trick the king. And so they come to the, the king and they kind of boost his ego a little bit and say, nobody can pray to any god except you for X amount of many days. And with the intent that they knew that da- Daniel was going to pray to his god. So the king goes, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Puts a seal on it, it's law. Well, Daniel, as his custom, goes up and prays. He's taken in front of Darius, and Darius realizes his mistake, but he can't change the law. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And in verse 18, Now when the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. If you've never heard a lion roar, it's pretty, uh, pretty frightful experience. I can't imagine being thrown in a den full of lions. But not only that, when we look, we see that his enemies are thrown in. And something that caught my eye, just as, I mean, I've read the story several times, but this caught my eye a couple of days ago. It says in verse 24, And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. That's the power of these lions. And Daniel was in there all night with these lions because of God's power. Flip over in Daniel to Daniel chapter 3. We've kind of gone back in time. The Babylonians are still in power. And Nebuchadnezzar has set up this gold image. And he has made this decree. When you hear the music, when you hear the flutes and the harps and all that, I want you to bow down and I want you to worship this image which I created. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, I'm going to be a nice king, and so I'm going to give you a second chance. And then they answer him in 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this faith in God's power because they knew who he was. They, they trusted in God. But they didn't know if God was going to save them or not. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. The furnace is heated up seven times hotter. The mighty men, the men that, you know, all the men in the army of the Babylonians look up to, why as they are, as they are taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the furnace, it's so hot that they die. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he doesn't see three men, but four. He calls them out. You know, when they came walking out of that fire, that was, that was a miracle, right? But they weren't burned. Their hair wasn't singed. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. That is the power of the God that we serve. And you know, we as Christians, we're found in Him because of His power. In 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. We read, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. In our weakness, we are made alive because of the power. God. We see that He has loved us with a powerful hand. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. And in verse 12, With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for His mercy endures forever. Some versions say, For His steadfast love endures forever. And we know that His love is everlasting. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, we see that His love does indeed last forever. The Lord has prepared of old of me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That is the God whom we serve. And that is the God that that Paul is trying to to show the Roman Christians and us today. And when he asks that question, if God is for us, who can be against you? This is the same God that loves us, that wants us to come near, that is all-knowing, that is all-powerful. So who can stand against us? You know, in John chapter 3, verse 16... A very famous verse where we see, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the love and the power of God. 
in talking with friends and uh, just people, um, death is something that comes into each and every one of our lives. And for some people, it's scary because of the unknown. Nobody has died and come back to life. Yeah, one person has, or a couple people have. Because you see, Jesus died and was raised. You know, it interests me. The, the Romans were masters at torture, masters at crucifixion. And, you know, the chief priests come up and, and they don't want the bodies uh, on the cross there because of the Passover. And so Pilate commands that their legs be broken. When, they, when their legs broken, they die faster. And so the Romans go and they break the legs of the two robbers beside Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. And it says that Pilate was that marveled because of that he was dead so fast. There was no question he was dead. But three days later, he arose to sit at the right hand of God. A friend was telling me that how they how they really liked Paul's writing in First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. And they said that, you know, it just gives me courage because here Paul, who has faced death so many times, says in chapter 15 and verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Even death has no power against God because He is almighty. He is all-powerful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 14, not only is, was Jesus raised from the dead, but we see that we also will be raised up in Christ. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8 to Christians. Those individuals who have already dedicated their lives to serving God. Who are trying to be holy, trying to walk in steadfast love. And all the examples that I've pulled from are people who have tried to follow God. Who tried to at least turn to Him once to seek Him. And we know that God... Is for the righteous, but he has, he has set his face against the wicked. We see that in Psalm 34 and verse 16. In Leviticus chapter 22, we read that he is against those who profane his holiness. And in chapter 26 of Leviticus, we read uh, in verses 14 and 17 some of the conditions that God has given the children of Israel. He's saying that if you follow my commandments, if you do what I want you to do, I'm going to bless you. But look at what happens when they don't. In verse 14 of, Levit of Leviticus chapter 26, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall, sow sorrow, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. 
I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And we see that happening over and over and over again in the history of Israel. Think about the period of the judges. A generation rises up. They don't know God. They follow after idols. God gets fed up with them. He sends an oppression upon them. And eventually they turn back to God and they plead to Him to save them. And God sends a judge to, to get them back on the right track, to, to free them from their oppression. Over and over and over again this happens. And we see this not only stopping in the time, time period of the judges, but again in the divided kingdom. The kingdom of Israel fell away from the, first, from the beginning, did not return to God, and God utterly destroyed them. Even Judah, even though they had a few good kings, it came to a point where their sin was just so much that God says... You're going to go into captivity. I will keep a remnant, but you will go into captivity. You will lose the land which I gave you. Because, you see, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. Because He's holy. And when we as Christians strive for that goal, God is with us. He's with the righteous. But when we do not strive for that goal... He's going to be against us. You know, I mentioned earlier that most scholars believe that this letter to the Roman Christians was written around AD 55 to AD 57. And Paul writes this question, if God is for us, who can be against us? As an encouragement to the Christians. And, and I kind of say, why is he writing now to the Christians as to an encouragement, something so powerful and wonderful? Well, then I started doing a little bit of history. Seven to nine years after this letter, the Great Fire of Rome happens. And Nero blames the Christians. Our brothers and sisters were stuck upon poles, doused in oil, and lit to light the streets of Rome. Men, women, and children were thrown into the games, to be torn asunder by, by wild beasts. And the answer that Paul gives them to this question, he gives to us today, allows us to answer this question with the full knowledge that if God is with us, then nothing can be, if God is with us, then nothing can stand against us. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, or verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also written, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril of the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we seek His righteousness, if we seek to be holy, then the answer to this question is nothing. But if we don't seek to be holy, if we don't seek His righteousness, then everything can be against us. In Numbers chapter 14 The children of Israel have, you know, in the preceding verses, decided that they weren't going to go into the land of Israel because it was going to be too hard and they couldn't do it. And then, you know, they have this whole, uh, the whole judgment right there where you're going to be wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness and not one of you shall enter the land but Joshua and Caleb. And in chapter 14, in verse 40, they have this change of heart. They, you know, they come and they say, we have sinned against God. Let us go up now. And, and Moses, Moses makes it clear that don't go up because God's not going to be with you. They say uh, in verse 40, they rose up early in the morning and went to the top of the mountain saying, here we are. We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And they do go up. But in verse 45, and they, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them. And drove them back as far as Haramah. You see, with God against them, they couldn't stand. Today, we don't face physical enemies. Because you see, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us who our enemy is. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The spiritual realm that we are now in is in constant battle. But you know, if God is for us, then you know we can be persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the encouragement that Paul is trying to give to these Romans. And that's the answer. That nothing if you are with God and God is with you, we'll be able to stand against you. That's all I have. We will take a little bit, a 10-minute break, a little bit more. But thank you for your uh, attention and for your encouragement. <laughs>